Hi everybody, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts from uh, Poverty to Power. Um, it's all gone a bit crazy. Start of term, hundreds of new students pouring into LSE, everybody coming back from holiday, the weather's all gone nasty and it's pouring with rain the whole time. Um, Nairobi from last week feels a long, long way a time ago. Um, but it's all exciting and it's all fun and the students are great and uh, I've almost finished updating How Change Happens, my last book. So one big heave on that with fantastic support from people in Oxfam. So I feel like I'm spinning lots of plates, but productively. Anyway, on with the blog. Uh, this is two weeks worth. I've been sort of at low productivity on the blog because of all these other pressures. But uh, links I liked, uh, traditional. Um, one thing I liked there was the, a piece on um, USAID who, do some, who are doing some really interesting stuff. One of the things they picked up is this idea that's been floated by a few people that when you look at the value of an aid project, it shouldn't be comparing the aid project to just not spending any money. The benchmark should be how does this aid project fare compared to just giving poor people the money? You know, this whole, whole idea of cash transfers has really uh, taken off in recent years uh, as, a, as, a, as an intervention in itself. But here, USAID has done a whole uh, load of work on the methodology for comparing it, uh, for comparing projects to cash transfers as a benchmark. And I think that's okay. It's a bit geeky, a bit techy, but I think the, the concepts are a really good one. Um, uh, so, I mean, if you're into that kind of thing, do do look it up. Second post was a book review, uh, and this is a book called Power and Progress, Our Thousand Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity um, by Darren Asimoglu and Simon Johnson. And I started reading it in a fairly sceptical frame of mind because I didn't much like Why Nations Fail, which Darren Asimoglu wrote with uh, another author, James Robinson. But it won me over in the end, especially the final chapter on what to do about the current tech nightmare of AI, filter bubbles, myths and disinformation, gig economy ex exploitation, etc., etc. So the main message is that since roughly 1980, something has gone horribly wrong with the way technology has been introduced into society. Wave after wave of disruption has led not to increased productivity or inclusive prosperity as previously, they argue, but has contributed to division, inequality, and injustice and repression. Much of the data comes from the US, but the book makes the argument more widely. This is not inevitable, but the result of power, politics, and the way decisions have been made. Previous tech waves have worked at the service of society, something they call MU, machine usefulness. But that process of harnessing tech for social good has broken down. Surveillance and job-destroying automation have taken over as the driving forces of tech research and development. The chief cult culprits are the tech companies themselves, the politicians, and also, interestingly, some of the academics. Luckily, alternatives are out there, not just from pre-1980 history, but also in the way governments convened tech companies and academics to produce COVID vaccines in a matter of weeks. So some of the things I liked, the emphasis on the importance of ideas and narratives and the ability of the vision oligarchy, what a great phrase, the vision oligarchy that controls them to capture the minds of public and decision makers alike and preclude any discussion of more progressive alternatives. Yep, looking at you, Elon. Modern society runs on persuasion power, they say. Very good. Next, next thing I liked. 
Technological reorganization of production, even when proclaimed in the interest of progress and the common good, has a way of pushing down the already disempowered. Overcoming that requires counter-narratives and, more importantly, countervailing politics. Given that one of the authors is a former IMF chief economist, the starring role for trade unions in such politics is quite striking. <coughs> Excuse me. They see a repeat pattern uh, in things like the Industrial Revolution in Britain or the late 19th century in the US of a kind of inverted U-curve, so an N-curve, I suppose, Tech innovation goes to increasing inequality. Increased inequality uh, leads to countervailing power, a pushback. Countervailing power leads to redistribution. Redistribution leads to social progress. So they think the last 40 years has left us right in the middle of that process. We're in the dark days before the dawn, or could be if people take action. The authors are particularly critical of AI as currently governed which they think is likely to ratchet up automation, surveillance and inequality. AI is the mother of inappropriate technologies, playing off that whole that old idea of appropriate technology. A tech vampire squid, these are my words, not theirs, making everything worse unless reined in and put at the service of society. This is not inherent to the technology though, but the fact that it's being developed along these lines in order to maximize, maximize profits for big tech. They contrast this with machine usefulness and set out four ways AI could be steered in a better direction. One, increase word at worker productivity and tasks they're already performing rather than replacing the workers. And they give an example of architects and computer-aided design or the invention of the mouse. The, the you know, the, the little computer mouse, not the beast. Um, creation of new tasks for workers, e.g. personalised teaching methods enabled by technology. Filtering and access to accurate information like the World Wide Web. Creating new platforms and markets like M-Pesa in East Africa or Airbnb. But human complementary machines like these are not attractive to organisations when they are intent on cost cutting. So these kinds of tech innovation are being squeezed out. What to do about it? How to break the downward spiral of political capture and uh, feeding off policies that favour the vampire squid. They set out their ideas in a chapter on redirecting technology. And while it's a bit thin on the politics that might actually allow this to happen, it's pretty interesting. Their recommended strategy has three prongs. One, alter the narrative and shift the norms. And they compare this to the environmental movement over the last 50 years or the campaign for access to medicines for HIV AIDS. Two, cultivate countervailing powers based on worker organisations or civil society organisations. Three policy solutions, and not surprisingly, this is the strongest prong. Market incentives, regulation, like breaking up big tech companies or tax reform. They like the idea of a digital advertising tax to wean tech companies away from a business model based purely on chasing eyeballs, however grotesque the consequences. Government leadership in convening private sector academics and others, a la COVID. There are some features that are quite common to these big books, in my experience, and they're a mixed bag. It's way too long, and that it needs to, uh, and that's because of the excessive repetition in hammering home a simple message. I think it could easily have been half its 450-page length. On the plus side, there are lots of wonderful historical examples and great quotes, which I will doubtless steal. Here's one from Hannah Arendt, 1974. If everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies but that nobody believes anything any longer. Uh, 
one from US Senator Mark Hanna in the 1890s. There are two things that are important in politics. The first is money and I can't remember the other one. I really like that. And third, Winston Churchill, who just spent his lifetime, I think, manufacturing quotes in 1929, when asked to meet leaders of India's independence movement to find out more about changes in the country. I am quite satisfied with my views of India. I don't want them disturbed by any bloody Indian. So, um, yeah. OK. Um, big beef. There are no footnotes. I must be turning into an academic or something. But I kept wanting to see where a given statistic or source came from. And all that's offered are bibliographic essays on each chapter, which are not nearly as easy to navigate. And econosplaining. Asimoglu is an economics prof at MIT. Johnson, as I said, a former IMF chief economist. Don't get me wrong, some of my best friends are economists, but I do get annoyed by the arrogance of economists discovering politics and power and explaining it back to the rest of us, often badly. But to be fair, the efforts here are not that bad, especially that good final chapter. So good book, lots to chew on here. Darren, if you're listening, don't write books with James Robinson, write books with other people, much better result. Final post, what can we learn from how an uh, adaptive management program has navigated Myanmar's current chaos? Actually, it's not the final post. I accompanied a project in Myanmar that ran from August 2017 to October 2021, implemented by DT Global. Then this blog is written together with guest bloggers Jane Lonsdale and Kelly Robertson, who are still at DT Global. As part of this program's final output, we wrote a reflection paper discussing what ended up as being an important natural experiment in adaptive management, as a governor's project set up to be adaptive was buffeted by and responded to two huge critical junctures. First, COVID-19, and second, the military coup of February 2021. Sadly, because of the dire situ security situation, staff, partner, donor and program details have had to be minimised. So the focus is on the practicalities of how adaptive management took place with the intention of giving some real life experiences and tips to those grappling with how to do it. The result in our heavily biased opinion is a useful addition to the literature on adaptive management. So some highlights. First, here's how a senior national staffer at this organization sees adaptive management. Because I'm from Myanmar, adaptive management is more like real life. Our whole lives are about adaptation. No one trusts the political stability of the country. So we can't plan our lives like people in the West. Love it. Adaptive management is real life. The paper uses DT Global's adaptive management framework to analyze how adaptive over, how adaptive over time the program was in four dimensions of flexibility, responsiveness, purposive learning and culture. To some extent, the paper marks its own homework finding that the programme passes the adaptive management test with flying colours. There was genuinely a lot of adaptation day to day and through two critical junctures. But what may be of most use to others is the section on further insights, which included, and this is what I pulled out from the paper, <clears throat> leadership, finding, supporting and setting leaders free, whether they're national or international leaders, to do great work was central to the approach for both the programme and the donors. In particular, having talented and natural, lead natural leaders among national staff was crucial. They had the respect and trust of the donor, were able to stand up to pressure and acted as a vital bridge so that the views and experiences of other national staff who were less confident in presenting their case in English, for example, were heard by the whole team 
and an empowered environment. A case of locally led development supporting thinking and working politically to um, jam together a whole bunch of, jar of, of cliches, but still meaningful in my view. Second point, gender inclusion and working with or bending the grain. There's a potential tension between working with the grain and promoting gender transformation or challenging gender norms. The grain in Myanmar is male dominated. The spaces in which to influence policy are also male dominated. Outside formal meeting spaces, beer houses and golf courses are often where decisions are taken. Working deeply on a reform space, building credibility, providing responsive technical assistance in governance and then wedging the entry point open, taking the relationship further to move into an influencing and technical space on underlying gender and power issues proved the most successful way to mainstream inclusion in the programme's work. Third, holding an umbrella over delivery staff. In the absence of transforming aid architecture to fully support adaptive management, minimising the amount of time that key national staff in particular had to sp spend on feeding the beast was important. This required additional staff to meet the reporting and compliance demands, which is too often seen as a luxury in aid programmes. Having an operations lead role that straddled programme and operations and an individual who knew and was interested in what both sides were doing in detail contributed to a rare harmony between the two. And this avoided a scenario whereby compliance staff dictates a delivery staff, which undermines effectiveness. A little bit about project design. Adaptive management in fragile settings is often difficult and high pressure. It mirrors real life better than the preordained predictability of a traditional development project with the instability and therefore inability to plan, it makes sense for development projects working on inherently political subjects such as governance in fragile states, um, but it's difficult. Optimal exploration period. For adaptive management programs, a phase of exploration is both inevitable and desirable. Problems to work on need to be analysed and agreed an initial theory of change can only be as detailed as the analysis and entry points that the team has identified so far. For this programme, it was 18 months, listening up donors, 18 months before the programme really gained traction. Improvisation versus accountability. The balance between freedom to think and work politically and structures to ensure accountability is a key tension within adaptive management. Too little structure, particularly on strategy and decision making, and there's potential for chaos, confusion and waste. Too many rules and processes to complete will squeeze the time, space and culture that frontline staff need to be out building relationships and opportunities. Final category, I think donors and implementers. The relationship balance is key, right? Working closely with a donor provided the environment to shift course easily, the trade-off being autonomy to fully set the agenda. The donor's willingness to learn and succeed or fail together gave the program the confidence to take risks. DT Global brought management project uh, project management and resourcing efficiency, giving the program leadership space and support. And the program ends with lots of recommendations to donors and implementing partners. I won't go through those, but it's really worth uh, you had taking a look if you're in this adaptive management kind of field. And final comment, looking back from September 2023, the Myanmar situation remains incredibly difficult and politically stuck. People are increasingly struggling in their daily lives. In terms of how international actors can best support inclusive, responsive governance and a sustainable reduction in violence, 
We still believe that working adaptively is needed to work in such a chaotic situation. And then the final post, goodness of good news. Brits are getting nicer. This was a really interesting piece in The Guardian uh, summarising the norm shifts that have taken place in the UK over the last 40 years based on the latest British Social Attitude Survey, which is marking its 40th year of mapping Britain's cultural and political landscape. Yeah, during that 40 years, there have been these massive left-right pendulum shifts of political debate, but the move, an underlying move towards a more liberal world is striking. 50% of respondents said same-sex relationships were always wrong in 1983, when Mrs Thatcher was in power, compared with 9%, 50% down to 9% in 2022. On a woman's right to choose an abortion, 76% support, uh, support women's rights now, against 37% when the question was first asked 40 years ago. An important finding for campaigners is that younger people, for the first time in 40 years, are becoming markedly more left-wing than older people. A development, it says, may be down to their sense of injustice around inequality and access to housing. You think? Some caveats and exceptions. While attitudes have changed, surprise, surprise, behaviours are not. So 75% of people in 40 years ago thought ironing was the women's job, compared with 16% now. But women still do most of the ironing. Attitudes towards the role and size of the state have fluctuated, with support for increased tax and spending, for example, swinging from 32% in 1983, right up to 63% in 1998, when New Labour had just taken power, falling to 31% in 2010, when David Cameron came in, and now back up to 55%, which I guess is good news for the Labour Party and its leader, Keir Starmer. Attitudes towards transgender people recorded only since 2016, appear more volatile, with a recent sharp decline in public support. The proportion of the British public describing themselves as not prejudiced towards transgender people fell from 82% to 64% between 2021 and 2022, when the latest survey took place. So two surprising things about that. That's a massive fall in one year. And two, I'm surprised, it's quite surprising for people to basically say, yes, I'm preju prejudiced. So something's definitely going on there. Similarly, while 58% of the British public agreed in 2016 that transgender people should be able to have the sex on their birth certificate changed if they wanted, that figure had dropped to 30% by 2022, suggesting an overall gradual erosion in support towards transgender rights since 2018. It's worth, and they don't, the, the, the article doesn't suggest any possible reasons for that. It's worth noting that Tory governments have ruled for 27 of those last 40 years, some with explicitly socially conservative policies. Yet this seems to have limited impact on the evolution of public attitudes. The drivers of social liberal, liberalism, difficult word to say, are deeper and more long term, such as people going to university, more women going out to work, and the decline in marriage and organised religion. And on that last point, I, I flipped over. It wasn't in The Guardian, but I went over to the actual uh, British Social Attitude Survey on that last point on organised religion. In 1983, two-thirds of the British public just identified as Christian. This figure now stands at just over one-third. 
with 52% of the public saying they do not regard themselves as belonging to any re uh, religion. And this stands in contrast to the growing confidence in science and technology, reflected in the answers to this rather convoluted question. And the question was, you know, do you, do you believe in science and technology or religion, basically? And that's, that, I was surprised by that because, you know, you hear so much about questioning experts, questioning science, the, all, the huge row over COVID vaccines. Um, and yet actually people now believe much more in science and tech than they did. But I guess the anti-vaxxers will just say the survey is part of the big conspiracy. So all in all, I thought this was a useful reminder that the big normative tides continue, to some extent irrespo irrespective of formal politics, and that many of those changes are progressive, and that should give some comfort to campaigners and activists. And not just in the UK, I assume, perhaps rashly, that something similar is happening in many other countries, and please do send links. And it does certainly reflect my own life. I just started thinking about what it was like growing up in the 1970s in the UK, and it was, it was horrible. You know, routine and unquestioned homophobia, sexism, horrible racism, which is really pretty unimaginable today. Of course, it doesn't answer a big question, which is how activists can best push forward the progressive waves and defend against regressive ones, which seems to be one of the big questions facing us at the moment. But that's for another post. That's me done. Have a great weekend. Talk next week. Bye.